a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, podcast people. Today, we come to you from Chandigarh in northern India. Chandigarh, magnificent part of the world. As the most excellent IPL adventure continues, you fine folk are listening to episode 181, and thank you for that, of the Howie Games, part A, featuring former sports reporter, now sports media mogul, Craig Hutchison. Good evening, welcome to Footy Classified. What a gather round it was. So many stories and postscript to the big weekend and a major success for the AFL. We'll get to that soon. Football's first lady. Hachi is a very good man. We actually used to spend a lot of time together, firstly through work, then a love of playing cricket and footy with our mates, then some travel. Then, as many of you know, life gets busy, a couple of kids and work for me. And Hutch, well, he has been building what can only be described as a media empire. But back when he was the leading newsbreaker in AFL footy, the best I've seen. Captain Wayne Carey could be forced into an early retirement as soon as tonight after a bitter internal furor with a teammate. Now, there are allegations stemming from the party of another teammate's house earlier this week. It splintered the kangaroos to their very fabric and prompted crisis meetings. People used to ask me all the time, you made Hutchie, what's he really like? My response was always the same. Craig is loyal, incredibly loyal to those around him, especially his old school mates from where he grew up in country Victoria in Warrigal. Gears, Mazza, Drata, the boys, do anything for them. And I love that about him. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by For some unknown reason to me, people have spent years trying to drag the big fella down. Maybe a bit of professional jealousy, maybe the tall poppy syndrome, maybe both. Anyway, they have said when he was breaking news, nah, he's no good, this can't last. When he was hosting his own footy reality TV show, when he was hosting the footy show, when he started his own business, nah, nah, this won't work, this won't work, give it up. When he purchased his first radio station, when he grew and grew and grew his business to its now massive size, it'll never work, they said, it won't work, Hachi, it won't work. Let me tell you, it is working in a massive way. Added to that, he is providing hundreds of jobs in sports media. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Quick disclaimer, because I'm fortunate enough to call Hachi a friend, you probably hear more from me in this episode than you would in the normal show. I'm reminding Hutchie of stories, old times, not usually the way I like to roll on the podcast. Don't worry, I won't make a habit of it. But some of these stories are really close to my heart. Good times spent with good people. So bear with me in this episode. Hutch, he could have been a four-hour episode. He has lived a life and a half and only seems to be just warming up. At the risk of sounding corny, I'll say it anyway, I'm really proud of Hutchie because he has built a wonderful life, a wonderful business, and gee, he is having a go. He's having a crack, something that I really rate. Enjoy the story of Craig Hutchison, a country kid and a self-made man. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie? Come on, children, tread with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Well, this is a treat because rarely do you get someone you call a good friend on your podcast. To get an hour and a half with this man is an effort in itself. He comes in here, he's checking out the technical setup, people are <laughs> handing him resumes looking for no, jobs. To get an hour and a half with you, Craig Hutchison, I feel truly blessed. Welcome to the Howie Games, mate. G'day, Howie. How are you? It's good to see you and congratulations on what you built here. It's pretty incredible. I'm very proud of you and I haven't been a very good friend in recent years, so... We all get a bit time poor, and that's no excuse, but uh, at least I could do. Yeah, it's right off the top. You are so busy. How do you balance that? Because I was thinking to myself, an hour and a half with Hutchie, I would not have had that for 10 years. 10 years. Yep. And I'm, when anyone asks me, what's Hutchie like? I'm like, he's the most loyal bloke I know. That's the first thing I say about you. And you're really loyal to your mates back in Warrigal, but how do you squeeze it all in and what has to give, mate? 
Well, I think you unfortunately you deprioritize friendships, which yeah. is the bad part of it. In fact, an, inter- an interesting footnote on that. So, and you remember this well, but you have a friend of the year, which yeah. you nominate every year, which I, I think is so cool. You've done well to remember that. And you nominated me your friend of the year back in times when I when I had less on. So, <laughs> congratulations! You were probably uh, like you. the two thousand and nine friend of the year. I reckon so- it was eight or nine, right. one of those years. You, you announced it at the Torquay Pub. <laughs> Right. We were having a farmer. That's right. I reckon I was halfway into a bowl of chips. That's right. And a second vodka and soda. That's right. And you nominated me. You explained, first of all, the significance of Friend of the Year. And then I thought, oh, it's a great story. And then you nominated me as your Friend of the Year, yes. which I take to this day very close to heart. This is how bad things have got, Howie. Yeah. I've actually taken that theme and now I have a reverse <laughs> piece of that. I have a thing called Bad Friend Day. <laughs> right where you get Where I just around. get everyone together about right. a bad friend do and say sorry. Generally in New York, because I'm not there as often. Yep. For hardly ever at all, but a lot of friends there, as you know, and you, and you do too. So I have a bad friend day in New York. Come, come and celebrate me, my lack of contact. Yeah, well, the, the, well, the, the, the friend of the year, <laughs> the friend of the year came. Who up else for is one friend of the year? By well, the way, there's lots. Well, yeah. the, the current friend of the year is a guy called Paul Raff, who owns a company called Mavis Peanut Butter. Yep. Moved to Barwon Heads. Uh, his young. So bloke, you've commercialised the friend of the well, year. Well, he's because he supplies <laughs> us with peanut butter. Oh, this is how you've changed. You've become oh, no, a commercial no, animal. No, see, I, I haven't looked at it like that. This is how you've changed. Because you've commercialised it. So For me, friend, it was just about who your old mates nah, are. All of a sudden now, it's who supplies the peanut butter. Friend of the year. That's disappointing. <laughs> friend of the, the year. The authenticity of you no, is part no. of your character. The friend, I'm disappointed to hear that. You've commercialised <laughs> this. I haven't. But if you want to get your hands on the best peanut butter out there, it is famous <laughs> peanut butter. Friend of the year was yeah. someone you met that year that you hadn't met before that had a positive impact on your life. It had to be within the same year period, right? Yeah, could, to, you couldn't grow into it like the brown line. No, you know, no. You've been a good friend for a couple no, of years. Only so 365 days of qualification category. I remember... I remember Limits handing it over really. in, in, Looking back, I, I took it to heart that I was that beat a whole series of people, but you might have only met three or four people that year. A, an hour and a half, uh, in all seriousness, like just just run me through how much you have on 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 a typical day. We'll get to where you start and what you're up to, but how much you've got on and how you prioritise your time. Yeah, I don't want to be one of those guys that sits here and says I'm busier than the next person because I think the way the world's gone, everyone's really busy, right? The days of you having a holiday or turning your phone, I oh, know you're probably the exception of most of these rules now I think of it. Well, I tell, I was tell the Costa Rica story then. <laughs> so so you, I, I met you in New York and I'd been in Costa Rica, I think it was with Erica, wasn't it? Yep. In, in LA, it was in LA. And I had come up from LA and you said, I'll send you a text. And I think I was on Erica's phone. I was like, you can't. I don't have you my don't, phone you don't with have me. You phone. And you or were, an email. <laughs> you, you, you were feeling horrified. I was like, who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh yeah. So I think the days of having, for most busy people, when most of the world is busy because mm. of the pandemic forced a whole bunch of conditions on everyone that have largely stayed, you, you can't, you don't. You can't go away, turn your phone off, have an hour to yourself. It's not practical these days, and nor do we, we expect that of each other, right? Even mm. if, even on the Easter weekend, the phone's going all weekend, and you don't even feel bad. I, I, some people don't feel bad even connecting. You might have half apologise. So I think everyone's busy, but I've always lived a seven-day work life since I was young, anyway. So this is not really any different. It's just a bit of a more amplified version of it, I guess. So you, you've got your phone there next to you. Is that on or off? On. Uh, yeah. On. So yeah. if I sort of took that and gave it to Tommy and said, right, Tommy's going to bring yeah. you anxiety in 24 hours, yeah. what what level of anxiety? High. Yeah. <laughs> I would never go to a restaurant where you check your phone in at the door, for instance, or right. anything like that. You would, though, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. I, when yeah. I catch up with people, potential friends of the yeah. year, I, I have a rule. So I, I catch up with certain mates a certain period of time, yeah. and I've said to them, right, phone on airplane mode. Yep. And it, it brings different levels of anxiety. I just watched the Masters. You'd be no good there. Hey, have you been to the Masters? You can't yeah, take, take your phone. phone. Yeah, that would, that would be a problem for me, I reckon. <laughs> but with that said, I think one of the only times I feel a little in my own space is on an airplane because if when the airplane has got no Wi-Fi, I find myself celebrating it now. I'd say good. Because you've got no choice and you're in that position, you might do a bunch of emails and land and go whoosh, which is not a great thing to do either, by the way, but at least you're in your own mode or your own mind at that time. Do you love the level of, like, it's funny, um, years ago- Take phone away, by the way. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. You can check it. We we had uh, Elise Perry on this show four years ago, and I said to her at the start, it's going to be tough for you because you are so modest, so you don't like talking about yourself. Believe it or not, for a TV person, which you are, now a radio guy, you're a really modest person. So you're going to have to let things off a little bit. So when you say everybody's busy, everybody is busy, but you are the busiest person I know and have been for 20 years, I reckon. I think, though, I, I see that as a, as a flaw because really? if you were genuinely smart at solving problems, you yep. wouldn't need as many hours in the days it takes me to do it. 
So right. I just see work rate as my only uh, ability to compensate for just like if there's people who are making much, much, much more money than me working far less. Right. And they're the smart ones, right? <laughs> Don't you think? Like if you well, yeah. if you can choose your path in life, you it's you know, you've got it you've got it down pat, you've got everyone running around to compensate for you going to the to the uh IPL. The IPL in no, India. I haven't got everyone All running around. All employees have to fall in the line while you take off from your <laughs> no, year. No, that's a bit of a... And then, right, let's not go down that When part. I last saw you in Sydney, you were like, I said, what are you doing next week? Oh, I'm off to Costa Rica, yep. phone down. Yep. You've yep. got it nailed. So I, I, I say that admiration. So I don't see it as a badge of honour to be working 15 hours a day. It's just I don't, haven't yet found any other way to do what I want to do without doing it. How many people would work, I would say... F- with rather than for you, because I know the way you approach your staff. How many people do you have working with you currently at the moment? If you look across SEN, your businesses, your basketball club, the footy record, countless other things that I don't even know about, ballpark entertainment, going to the States, your podcast, how many people do you reckon? There's probably in the ecosystem is about 900, but there's about 450-ish, 430, I think maybe, who are full-time colleagues. Wow. And then there's another about that that come and go, you know, on your identities who you're in essence business partners with or um, more casual labour who work for others as well but are also a big part of your world. So that's kind of I think roughly where it, where it is. And you try um, as a leader to have a relationship with all if you can. It's a lot of people. And when you start with one or two, you're kind of used to having that one-to-one connection. I'm not a big believer in hierarchy or roles or someone reports to someone. We've got all that, don't get me wrong, yep. but I think you need to be able to work with people, right? And so I'm not, I'm not saying I'm any good at it, but that's kind of my lot in life. It's a tremendous number of people. A couple of questions that are obvious spring off the back of that, and I'm sure it's public record. You talk about it as much as you want to. Say within um, the SEN group itself, can you give me an idea, because the question follows on from there, of your overall wage bill, like what, what you're putting out in wages annually? Is, is this on the record or not? If yeah, it's not, well, we turn over um, – we turned over the best part of 100 million last year. It's all in the public record, so you can see that, and, and that'll grow again. And so oh. the, our wage bill is pro rata to what you'd expect of that in any business. So. Well, I'm not at that level, mate. Yeah. I got Tommy here, yeah. so I don't know. Does that mean like 10 million? Does it mean 20 million? Does it like give me a general number? Yeah, I think it's in the neighbourhood of. Th- I, I shouldn't know this as the CEO yeah, no, of a no. public listed company, but it's in the neighbourhood of 35, 40 million bucks of. Okay, so wages. this is yeah. this is the the. The gist already That's why we of can't what you are. You, obviously. Well, well, yeah. we'll talk about the opportunities that I had to work there in the past <laughs> and how that turned out. Um, so you got thirty or forty million dollars in wages a year. When your head hits the pillow, do you have clarity to be able to go to sleep, or do you think we need to generate X revenue to keep all these people in jobs and keep them secure in their families and with their mortgages and their car payments and their happiness and a chance to go on holidays? Yeah. Does that weigh or not? That's yeah, a, a big a, time. Big, Big number, mate. Yeah, big time. That's it's a huge driver. Yeah, like it's a it's a responsibility for all of our. We got a, got a great executive team, um, so that's all of us. But it is on all of us as a it's a huge responsibility. And it, yeah, like I think you know by and large we haven't we've had a we've had people that leave us like any business and go and grow their careers other way. But we haven't made too many cha- changes of our own along the way. Like for all of our um, issues we've had to deal with, we haven't been flipping people over. Like, well, I, I pride myself on trying to make um, a staff relationship go as long as it can that suits that person. And that's and I've been blessed to have 15, 14, 13, 12-year, you know, in essence, partners in the business who are, who are employees of the business but who care about it and run it like their own. And so that's, that's the best fun part of it. But you do um, have that sense of responsibility that, like the pandemic, for instance, like you're thinking yeah. your way through and how you survive and what, yeah. what you need to do. So that's, yeah, it's no doubt. It, and that's, I, I'm sure people have their own businesses around, who are listening wherever you be around the world now would relate to this, that that drives you more than your own circumstance. And the flip side of that, the amount of people you've given opportunities to, as I said at the start, people that won't know you may or may not think this, you're a humble character, but the number of people you've given opportunities to, is that the positive side of yeah, what you're cool, doing? Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Mate, it's fantastic. Yeah. You look at, and I know I give him a bit of a hard time on the sounding board as a bit of fun, but you look at, say, Mitch Cleary over at yep. Channel 7 and the way he's grown through, he started off young in our business and grew through. You look at even, you know, Damo who left newspapers and then went on a different path and yeah. how well he's gone. Yeah. You look at Cane Corns and gone from a fireman really in essence to being one of the biggest cut through media identities in the country. And that's that's all been all of their work, but you've been a part of the platform on the way through or the... You know, they're the type of things that are great fun. 
you don't probably don't reflect on them enough because you're too. But you should. You're too caught in today's moment and today's problems because there's and, always an issue. And but, all, we'll get to dealing with issues of all the people like. Of all the people that I know fall under your umbrella, one that I find closest to my heart is Ian Smith. And you've got him doing breakfast radio out of New Zealand yep. um, from home. He's, for mine, the greatest cricket commentator I've ever worked with. I look up to him tremendously. Wh- who's the person that you've signed up and you've thought, wow, I can't believe I'm providing an opportunity. Again, no time for <laughs> yeah. modesty. Because th- there's people that work for you that will have been your heroes, that will have been work mentors. Who's the person you've looked at and thought, wow, I, I, I'm just pumped that I, I can be in a situation where I can work with someone? Well, I think it's it's pretty much all, right? Like it's it's, it's an honour to be around creative people, women yep. and men who are, are fantastic what they do. Smithy is clearly one of those. What a legend. Sport is our religion. And here is Smithy Sermon. Well, one of the reasons I love the Masters Golf Tournament each and every year is because... He, he's Someone described him to me recently as the, the most beautiful mix between your next door neighbour, your best friend and your great uncle. Yes. And I thought that was a pretty good description. Yeah, it is a good description. And um, But a lot of those uh, identities who work for us in other markets have not probably ever heard of me or us beforehand. Like we're, we're in a new frontier world in New Zealand. Yeah. You look at, say, Maddie Johns in Sydney or Cameron Smith in Queensland or even Gilly in WA is a close friend of yours. Yeah. Who we who we work with a little bit along the way. So it's, yeah, it's that's the, that's the fun stuff. And then you call my start fresh and I was trying to approach it like a business partnership because that's in essence what it is, particularly in new markets where you almost borrow from their persona more than they do. Well, you do borrow from their Absolutely. persona more than they do from yours. Well, if you're going into New Zealand yep. and you've signed Ian Smith and you had Brendan McCullum, like, yep. apart from probably Richie McCaw, that's as big as it gets in New yeah. Zealand. and New Zealand's been a, a complete eye-opener. Like, to be able to go into another country and set something up and then deal with all the things that come with that, it's been quite – and then McCullum's – Coaching of England didn't see coming. No, but to get to work with Smithy is awesome, and he's like they're very authentic. Authenticity is a great thing in radio. That's why your podcast is the biggest in the country because it relies upon your authenticity. It's people soon see through you. You're not feeding them. Yep, and you pick good people. Well, actually, you know, it lasts longer. Were you in the room when? Um, and I know Smithy listened, so he'll be grinding <laughs> his teeth now. Were you in the room when he sung "Country Road"? <laughs> Yeah, it was my half. Well, it was half my idea. It was had your fingers all over because I know Smithy, yeah. and there's no way he's doing that in public. Yeah. So he, well, I knew he loved the song because he's great. Love, Smithy's great love is his three boys. Yes. And his three boys are uh, just like his first, second, and third best mate. And his relationship with them is beautiful. It's just awesome. They can drink beer together, those lads. And they they all love the same things: yeah. beer and a punt, and watch some sport. Mm-mm. And so one of them played at Virginia. They played college. soccer, didn't he? College, and he used yep. to go over and watch, and they'd play that song. Yeah, so I knew he loved the song. <laughs> I waited till late in the night, asked if he could throw out a couple of bars, and, and that just happened to be filmed. And yeah, just happened to be caught. And then <laughs> I did ask for permission to distribute. At what time of the night? Uh, the next day, I didn't. I right. didn't get a no. I didn't get a yes. But I interpreted the. <laughs> it would have been oh, Hachi, Hachi. <laughs> and then when you picked up on Fox, it took on a whole new life. <laughs> yeah, no, we loved it. We loved it. Where did it start? Yeah, a Warrigal boy. Interestingly, on Smithy. Yeah, go on. I, I, go on. I know you know this, but. And I borrow a bit from your things, but I have a I have an Ian's lunch every year, right? And the Ian's lunch was two days later, and it's his first appearance at the Ian's lunch. Oh, we yes. took the Ian's lunch to Queenstown, yes, to in part accommodate Smitty, and now he's so loved in the all the other Ians love Ian. So, so it was much. just all Ian's yeah, every year. We have about twenty twenty five Ian's a right. year at lunch. He's yeah. uh, he's a star. Yep. He's a star. Um, Warrigal, what were you like at school? Well, you were up the road in Tarragon, right? Yeah, we didn't yeah. know each other at the time. But, no, we uh, didn't know each other at the time. But uh, what year did you finish year 12? Uh, 90, the year before the World Cup final. So 91. Everything goes in cricket. Yeah, yeah. So it was 92 <laughs> as a World Cup. 91, 91. I was 92. Right. Uh, I was un, an underachiever, I guess. Like I didn't, you know, English was probably the only thing I'd, I tried at. Everything else I was just okay at and didn't get great marks. Didn't miss out in the first round uni offer, to give you an example. Did you? Yeah, so... Had been working as a journalist as a kid since I was 12 or 13 and had was a bit pre-fixed on that being a thing. How'd you, what were you doing? Uh, like writing for the local paper, the Royal Gazette, right. you know, calling local sport, like just anything I can get my hands on. You were calling? 
Well, yeah, I'd call, um, you know, the trots or the trotting trials or, yeah, pretty much anything I could throw my hat in. I'd write the column on the local footy, the local cricket. Yes. Sunday morning, da- right. Dad would come along with a big ghetto blaster, hit record and play at the same time. Remember those days when you had to hit record and play at the same time? And But I'd just try to jump in where people weren't otherwise doing things. So there was no one writing local paper, so I did that. But that didn't match up to academics. I didn't... Um, I don't know whether I was a bit, I'm to this day a bit anti-authoritarian, so school f- probably represented a little bit of that. And what was the fascination of the, with the trots or writing in the paper? or I like just what? wanted to be a journalist, so anything that sort of added to the resume to get there. Uh, by the age of 18, I wanted to have a – I didn't I knew I was going to have a bunch of marks that were going to get me anywhere, so I wanted to have a fair resume that said I'd done. And in those days, you couldn't self-publish, so you had to rely on other people's platforms to do it. So you end up at the Herald Sun? Well, what was it called at missed the time? Missed the first time around, Herald Sun. Yeah, I went right. for the cadetship test at the end of 1992 and missed. Missed by a mile. Uh, went and did a year of professional writing and editing in St Albans. Hang on, I didn't know about this. What and, did that involve? Uh, and that was really tough yards. And then went back again at the end of 93 and got a cadetship. So what is a cadetship at 1994 in It Melbourne? was absolutely like it wouldn't pass many HR... <laughs> There'd be a HR inquest, I reckon, I into it. Would. And I say that with love because it was the best education you could get. But they were sweat years. And so what the Herald Sun system was, was a, if you're a graduate, it was one year, but if you were a non-graduate like me, it was a three-year. And you would get – you'd have to do classes. So you'd come in in the morning and you'd sit in classes and be taught journalism. You'd get – you'd do shorthand, 120 words a minute. So you have a shorthand class every Wednesday. How'd you go that? Uh, terrible. Eventually passed with a bit of cheating, and then <laughs> how do you cheat a shorthand? Well, it was a bit common that they would, if they would half help you cheat at the end if they thought you had a chance. The, the late Loretta, who was the cadet counsellor, bless her soul, now no longer with us, was, right. was had got had waved a few through that so she, she thought just had sort a of chance. waved you through, did she? <laughs> she'd, she'd leave the book open and turn a blind eye. <laughs> <laughs> but then it was like you'd do two two months in. Um, Cooking, two months in funerals, two months at the Weekly Times writing about cows, two months in overnights, uh, the police rounds, two months in two months in five point, which ended up being eight months, eight months of typing in results into a system at five o'clock, and I said, and then really, and then getting coffees and all those things. Well, they were tough years, they were hard years, yeah, yeah, but they shape you. You're two months in cooking, so there's various stories in my head that we've spent time together, and one relates to cooking, so I'm going to jump to that. <laughs> yeah. You were living at one point, and we'll get back to where you left off, with a fellow called Chris Jones, yep. who now is the executive producer of Channel 7 Cricket. Yeah, it's Does, awesome, yeah, isn't it? He's done, and he's done a great job. used to call him Rookie. Yep. Um, Still tend to when I see him. Yeah. So how long did you- that, And now he's a boss of 7 Cricket. Yeah, that joint in- Richmond, how long did you live there? Cutter for? Street, yeah, four or five years. So I don't know how I got roped into, probably because I had a ute, I got roped into the move. I don't know if you recall this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you folks were moving did you out. you help me move house yeah, back in the day? Cutter wow. Street. Um, yeah, that's that's what to type Port of Melbourne. friend I was. Yeah, we're moving to Port Melbourne. I, I had stuff. I, I in prayed the, on your love of Port Melbourne. Yeah, well, that's I? right. The back of the Holden Ute. But I remember <laughs> you said everything was good, and for whatever reason, I just thought I better check there was nothing like uh, oven trays or anything left in the oven. And you'd been in the joint four years. Now this is a, without a word of a lie. I opened the oven, and the instructions. We're still in the oven in a plastic pocket, <laughs> Guru. So it fascinates me yeah. what you did in the cooking beat yeah. at the sun. I don't think I used the kitchen there. No, we made the instructions were in the oven. <laughs> so what did you learn in cooking, In on the cooking beat? Did you have to write cooking articles? Uh, well, it was it was brutal because right. I just didn't know anything. The, the editor, I think, was Dorothy Carter at the time. Okay. And she'd say, I need, need you to pump out a recipe on... Uh, <laughs> Uh, blue grenadier, whitehead, blue grenadier fish with some rice. <laughs> right. And I was like, where do I get that? I don't know, just figure it out. Well, you can't go on the Google machine at that point. No, you couldn't Google it. No, you'd, just, <laughs> you'd, you know, you'd ring your auntie or something. Like it was. <laughs> so how, how did you – But did, what, did, what I, yep. what I w- worked out early was there was eight hours that you were required to do that. Yep. But it felt like there was 12, 13 or 14 hours in the day, right? So if it started 9 to 5, I'd get there at 5.30 a.m. and I'd leave at 8 p.m. And I'd try and use the three hours at the front of the day and three hours at the back to get published. Huh. And so I'd run around the departments, terrorise everyone and try and get published. And that was the fun bit, which justified the painful bit in the middle. And then I started to get published. So I started to get stories in the PM edition and the other cadets weren't necessarily getting published. They were following the more traditional route. So I felt a little lucky that I 
got published, though I wasn't, I was the worst of all the cadets. I nearly lost the gig, but I was getting enough stuff in the paper. And then I realized that was kind of going to be my lot in life was just to work a bit harder, I think. So, what was your first ever front page? Can you remember? Uh, yeah, well, my first, yeah, my first back page was a story at St Kilda about three injuries. I turned up at Moorabbin on a Friday. I read in the paper that they're having a practice match on the Friday night okay. during the bye. I thought that's risky. They've got injuries. Maybe no one will go because it's a Friday night. It's five o'clock. Other journalists might not turn up. So I rolled down there on my own. I sat in the grandstand. It feels a bit. Um, bad to say this, but I was hoping for something to happen in the game. Yep. And an injury was probably not what I wanted, but something that of newsworthiness to to do. And there was three key injuries in the game. I got an interview with Stan Ells afterwards and rang the news desk and said, I'm the kid in cadet room and I've got this story. <laughs> I'm in from the cooking department. And they want to tell you to go away, but when you tell them what the story is, they, and they, then they try and farm it out to one of them. Well, I've got words from the K. Okay, you better come in. So right. I drove in and sat outside the the print till midnight till it got published. Front page was the, um, I, I think it was the Fitzroy um, death. Right. Or merge. And I really didn't deserve it. I was the second byline of two. You're still on the list. I wonder who the other one was. I think it might have been Daryl Timms. Okay. I had some words or an interview with something that was in that story and it got merged into one pot and then ended up on the front. So I feel like my name's on that historical front page, but as the second name. And that feeling... Um which I've never worked in newspapers, but I presume when for the first time, it's like if you get your first TV story on air, when you're, like, you're hanging out by the press where you say, so you see your name come out on the back or the front for the first time? Yeah, I used to have an area upstairs called Five Point, which they used to actually cut the from the stone of the, they used to cut the copy. And I used to go up there and, and see it go and go. Wow. Oh, that, like it was addictive. It was so, if that, that was what I had wanted to do until that point. And then when you start to get into that rhythm, it, and I'm sure you see today with all the journalists, they still get quite driven by byline and placement. But in those days, the pre-digital era, it was everything. And it was, yeah, it was like you, you felt a ruthless want to get the next story. And then you- In hindsight, it was, you overplayed in your mind by a fair bit. Yeah, but, but it, it's big at the time yeah. though. Like it's like- it, As a 19 or 20 year old kid, when you're being published in the paper and your mates are reading it, it's like pretty cool, isn't it? Did you cut it out or keep it or anything back then? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I've still got it. I have it somewhere. Right. The worst thing I used to do. Yeah. <laughs> the five, five, I talk about five points. Yeah. So, you know, when you go to the newspaper now, there's still two or three pages of like tiny sports results mm -hmm. from around the world. Oh, yeah, like like the master scores or yeah. the by the but it'll have German soccer. Like, yeah, German, yeah, it's a good example. The Bundesliga. It, yeah. It can be sometimes in a paper two, three, four pages of those in those days. These days it might be one or one and a half. So you have to compile all those. In those days, you had to actually manually write them in and type them in, and then you'd and the reason it's called five point. That was the size of them, and then it'd get sent off to the stone upstairs. But after about seven or eight months of being in five point, the amount of my mates <laughs> that achieved historical sporting things. One of my Warrigal mates beat Yancha Khan twice in squash. <laughs> Pakistani squash yeah. legend. Another mate of mine, uh, I think he put on 300 with Graham Hick in a county game. <laughs> Bad things looking back. Little subtle things. But the things you do as a kid when you're trying to amuse yourself through are pretty tough. <laughs> and your, and, I, and I've heard you talk about this before, I don't know the exact um, expression about break or breakthrough, but basically just to, to push your way into where you need to get to. How did that translate in a newspaper journalist form for you? Yeah, I was really unpopular there. So the bulk of the journalists just couldn't cop me at all. There was a hierarchy there and it was well established and you had to do your time. And so you didn't get given opportunities to write in the sports pages. You had to do a 10 or 15 year apprenticeship and there'd be 50, 60 people queued up trying to get a sports role. And I just was naive. I didn't, in my head, I wasn't being rude. I was just ambitious and I didn't really have the social awareness to understand the rules. So I would, if the cricket writer went away for two weeks, I would just start writing cricket for two weeks and he would come back and I'd be published seven times and of course carnage in his patch. Uh, <laughs> so that happened with, I reckon it was Trent Bouts went away, um, Peter Dezira, soccer, right. one of the great soccer writers. So, so you just jump in and he start away for breaking six weeks. stories. Well, there'd be a gap in the paper because they was generally rounds. Yeah. And so I'd just jump into the, into the rounds and start writing and in my head I didn't understand what I was doing but... It, You'd, and then you get published and they might have had 10 or 15 years of knowledge of that sport or the politics of it and you'd come in and give the people who had never had a voice a voice. So I can understand that they got back 
or they probably, in those days, they probably weren't reading online, right? They're probably in Europe in holidays. They come back after two weeks and some young kids come in. And But how are you getting the story? Like when you're moving into soccer, very specific, yeah. especially in this country in the 90s, very different yeah. to how it is now. What, are you just getting on the phone? or they Pick the telephone up, yeah. Right. I'll just ring and ring and get a list of people a day, try and make 80 calls a day and go. 80 calls well, I, a day? I don't know how often I got through that in those days, but that was more as my aim. Yeah, just wow. pick the phone up and ring people. And to see what happened, you know, like it was, they weren't going to ring you. Yeah. So, and then naivety was probably part of the help because you didn't know what you didn't know. And then you'd stumble into some things and you'd get a couple wrong, but you find how, a story here or there. So, mate, as a kid, how did you handle, like, you sort of play that, you know, shambling sort of <laughs> unkempt, like I always get. Shambling unkempt? Well, yeah. Well, that, <laughs> Is that your words, best description they? of Well, me? that's the sort of role, like I only say that because everyone says to me when I'm doing stuff, they say, you know, you have the ability like Craig Hutchison to make a $2,000 Fox footy suit look like it's worth 150 bucks. So I, I take that as <laughs> I take that as a thing of pride and you said you're authoritarian, <laughs> yeah. but that's, you know, you were yeah. sort of this sort of, you know, I don't know, Inspector Clouseau bumbling your way through persona you gave, but that wasn't you on the inside. But but how did you take it as a kid when you're walking into the office and you're getting death stares from senior journalists? Well, I just, I don't know. I didn't know any other way. Right. So it didn't worry you? I've been unpopular since I started, so I didn't. Right. I don't so that was just part of the job. Well, it wasn't like I started out liked and then right. fell out with anyone. <laughs> right. You just started not just... liked and pushed on that way. <laughs> Just that was just how it was. Yeah, so okay. I didn't. And again, um, uh, I think I said this the other day on maybe might have been the sounding board, but I got uh, a mug from my partner Claire for Christmas that said, "I'm, I'm totally self-aware of my lack of self-awareness." <laughs> that was just like I just didn't. I didn't recognise that I was being disliked until everyone said, "Gee, you're not liked." And so, what do you mean? And so that's yeah. But I, looking back, I contributed to the bulk of that because I didn't play the didn't play the politics, so I just went about trying to get some stories. And because I was only there for a short period of time every day, I was like, okay, i got three hours before get in. cadet classes go, so yep. I'm going to be here on the phone. Back to Hutchie in a moment. Next up, an athlete in the GOAT conversation in his chosen field, the greatest of all time. We love a GOAT. Five-time male international hockey player of the year, Jamie Dwyer. Now, Jamie provided Australia with one of the greatest sporting moments I have had the pleasure of seeing live. So I flicked the two before and he saved them just, actually a pretty good save. So I thought, I'm going to flick this again. Uh, out the corner of my eye, the guy was on me. Uh, it was higher, a little bit higher than what he normally was. So as the ball was coming over to me, I was like, I have to hit this. So in that split second, I've changed from flicking to hitting. So I hit it, come off sweet. It missed his foot by about one or two centimetres, went in between the keeper's pads, up into the goal. and. I remember it just is like, I don't know, the movies where it just stopped. Everything just completely stopped. And I was like, yep, I hit that. It got a deflection. It's in the goal. That's a goal. And then yeah, I looked over to the umpire. He blew a goal and then I ran off uh, like a crazy man and <laughs> celebrated for, uh, for a while. <laughs> that is Jamie Dwyer next up on the show. Alrighty, let's get back to Hutchie. You mentioned the sounding board. It was remiss of me at the start not to say um, that you have brought me seven or eight years of joy because my favourite podcast, you know that, to the point where I save it. So if I'm going to the footy, so when I'm driving up today, I was listening to an IPL podcast that I wasn't enjoying but I needed to listen to to get information about the IPL. On the trip home, I listened to you and Damo. So when I get time that I think well, I'm going to relax now in the car, it brings me a tremendous amount of joy. So we'll get to the podcast. So I should have thanked well, you, Well, that's mate. a huge compliment coming from you and what you've built here with the Howie Games. Well, so, it's, it, uh, I know you're a Damo fan, so that's... Yeah, no, I am. I am, <laughs> but I'm a you fan as well. It's like, it's like me listening to two mates having a yeah. laugh, which which is why I love it. So how do you, when does a big, big, juicy TV offer come from the, this little dude from Oregon who's causing trouble at the at the newspaper? Oh, the TV? Yeah. Oh, as in journalism back yeah, in the day? yeah. Well, how did that come about? So I got I was in Herald Sun Sport, then went to Breakfast Radio as a in in the third year. So I, this is a bit of a boring story, but you can no, edit no, it. No, edit no, in, we won't edit, edit it out, Guru. Post. We won't edit it out. In the second year of the my cadetship, they broke a rule and gave me a six month stint in sport, which had never I don't think had ever happened. So it was but, the first offer, first time it happened. And so that made my relationship with everyone else worse because. <laughs> 
I've been so I've made an exception pretty much based on the volume of stuff I'd had printed. So Phil Gardner, who I who I had enormous respect for, the editor in chief, uh, fantastic editor, um, and still in a very influential in universities these days, and still stay in touch a little bit. He corrupted a world for me to get six months in sport. Then was getting published regularly, you know, that back and front, whatever. And then at the end of that six months, as cadets fell out of the system, they had to backfill those roles and I was pushed back into the system. He only got a six-month exemption. <laughs> so come year three, I'm back doing – like I've gone from having a taste of it yeah. to being cut off. Yep. And it was only in the third year and I and I and then I got a breakfast radio offer from Kevin Bartlett and Dr. Turf. First time I met Dr. Turf was right. on, on the day of the meeting around Sport 927, the now RSN. Yep. And I thought, I rang my dad. He goes, "No, nah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that." Um, and cause my dad's quite, and that was a good conservative advice. But I just thought, "Oh, I'm just going to do it anyway and take it on." And so I went there. And then I was producing breakfast and had Kevin's support. And at the end of maybe six months, I got an opportunity at, at ten. But a fellow was being a bit poor to, to, to the radio RSN. Yep. So I said. Yeah, if you're interested in a year or six months. And then they came back again, uh, a great friend of mine, Tim Cleary, who you know well, yep. who's who was at the Herald Sun at the time, knew of me via sport. He went to 10 as the producer and he gave me the opportunity to be his footy guy. So in 1997, I uh, resigned from RSN and went to 10. And, did and you... my first screen test was horrendous. In was fact, it? it still exists. Well, Hutchie, I, I wanted to ask this because Eddie's, Eddie still exists. Yeah. So who, who's got it? Wait, Tim, what? Tim's got it. Tim's got it. Yeah. So would I be and, able to get the audio from Tim? And he holds it against me as collateral endlessly because it's well, really bad. I only want the audio. It's bad. Will he give me the audio yeah, to yeah. play here? Yeah, you, he'd probably drive it here. It was in Byron Bay. He's <laughs> dying for someone to run it. What, 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 what type of gear is it just before we roll it in? Sun's in my eyes. I can't, I can't compute the, the sun, so I'm blinking like a madman. <laughs> My voice is too rehearsed. I misunderstand that. It's terrible. <laughs> Another positive to emerge from the match was the performance of keeper Darren Berry, who broke Richie Robinson's Victorian record. <laughs> <laughs> and did you did you go through with that crash or crash through approach into like who was the established because so people that are listening to this not from Victoria you know Channel Ten was Steve Quartermain. It was Eddie Maguire, it was Bruce McAvane. You know, these are the creme de la creme that, that, that got their start there at 10. Yeah. Who, who was the big dog when you rolled in? Did you get your start there or were you seven? Uh, I started at seven, but yeah. with a great deal of success and went to 10. We'll, we'll <laughs> yeah. get to your and my seven days <laughs> soon. So, yeah, so Quarters was reading. Yeah. Tim was the producer and they were, it was 22 years old, 23 maybe, Chapel Street. It was fun. Yeah. Uh, and it was manic, manic couple of years. Um, but... Yeah, the, my approach was, again, the same, crash or crash through. The great thing about 10 is they had time and they would let you develop, right? They would throw you in and live with the consequences, whereas yes. 7 and 9 were more refined. That was the best news. thing about 10. Best. Let you do what you needed to Not do. Not many and... people who started at 10 or have worked there speak badly no, of it at all. That's it's fantastic a, it's a great to way to – and the culture is – us against the world. We've got limited resources, but yeah. we'll show them. So I, I'm full of admiration for you. You're the bottom of the ladder team, occasionally landing a blow yeah. on the big boys, but but not very often. And you, and you love it when you do. And so how did you go about developing a contact list to be able to consistently break big stories when when the stories used to get broken on the news because you didn't have to put them online or et cetera? You'd turn on to the news and Craig Hutchison would have a breaking story and they'd promo it and then you'd have to sit and wait to the sport yep. to see what the big boy had come up with. Well, I was lucky to have Tim. He was as driven as me. We'd often be sitting there at 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, dreaming up the next day and pushing each other. Like So that was – he was young and motivated as well. And so we were pushing each other to be disruptors and we actually thought we were generally – you know, like you look back now and you – Yep. convincing yourself you're having an impact on the others when you're not really. You just convince yourself you do. Second thing is you've got the time. Third thing you got the pressure. So you got often in the rundown three or four or five minutes to fill. Mm. And so that's a long time to be talking about something that isn't interesting. Mm. Or, and then you got to go first, which was the best, because then you got to sit and watch if anyone else reacted to you. First by the fact that you're- 5.40 p.m. 5.40. Yep. See, I ended up getting slotted into the 5.35 funny story before oh, you, the yeah, score. I remember that. That, that was my area. Yeah, you and Tim Bailey. Yeah, that's it, and Grant Enya. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. But, so the, the traditional news is 7 and 9 and come on at 6, so you had yep. the 5.30 first swing. So give me a, and I know you don't like to tell stories, but give me a story about- a, a, a different way to approach a story that, that paid off for you. Just, give me one in your mind. Uh, well, I loved going on the road 
and competing against the other. Yep. Because in a normal newsroom, you are competing against the other networks for unknown content, right? So my story today might be about someone who's injured. Your story might be about a political situation and the third story might be about a coach getting sacked. But no one knows what anyone else is chasing. When you go on the road with the other networks, you're competing on largely known content. If you go on a state of origin trip, it's yep. who can get the best state of origin story. If you go on a trip for Essendon's game of the finals in Adelaide, yep. you're competing on what you can, you know, who can get the best Essendon story. So I loved that stuff because I would back myself to win the unknown content, but I loved trying to play tricks on the others on the known content. And, tricks. And that got me into trouble a little bit over the journey. But trying to out, out pit the others, it was never personal. It was just business and fun, right? So... Stuff like that. I can recall, I don't know when this was, but I'd hurt my knee playing footy, which will get to us playing sport together. Um, I'd hurt my knee playing footy, and I'm not going to mention where I was going, but I was going to see a doctor, and I was telling you this, and I reckon you gave me some beers to give to someone that worked <laughs> within the area of the medical facility. And I was gullible at the time and you're like, oh, this is just a mate, you know, he's, yep. I just owe him some beers. But looking back yeah. to me, he, he was one of your people. As a journalist, I put a premium on sets of eyes. So it didn't matter to me whether they were a coffee attendant, a gardener. I think it was a gardener, Hutch. I think this <laughs> bloke was a gardener. Um, building, someone who worked in the building is always, you know, or across the road because like – one of the great things of journalism is seeing something happen and or getting a camera there quick enough. So I, that was an area I'd fished in a little bit back in the day. <laughs> Some of those things probably weren't fair and reasonable things to do. In but so, but you, had, like, you must have had a Christmas payoff where you had to go around and repay. I'd trade in, yeah, beers and tickets and all that sort of stuff. Footy tickets? Yep. Clever. Yep. Now, what, like understanding what someone's interested in. And I think the other thing is if you've got a – if you've got a um, – I shouldn't say this – if you've got a job that you're not excited by, yes, and you can help someone's job make it a little more exciting, absolutely, then they it, good things might happen from that. Everyone's a winner. Yeah, so but I love the idea stuff. Like, um, and you love this too. Like, you have an idea and yes. it manifests a story. It's far greater fun than learning any information. Absolutely, it is. The one the, the ones that spring to mind were, yep. um, you know, Kevin Sheedy had done this whole routine about. We're planes, trains, and automobiles. We're going to Adelaide. We're going to beat Port Adelaide yes. in the first final. And, you know, he's dressed up all week. And, like, he was all in on getting Essendon fans in because he knew they couldn't otherwise win. And so um, planning the seat with him about why don't we go and meet the Overland, train together at 4.30 in the morning. When the Essendon fans get off, they see the coach on the platform. So you've teed it up with him? I, I, I planted the idea with him. Right. What about how good would this be for, from a vision point of view? And what an amazing story. And it would make you look really great, Kevin, because you're there <laughs> meeting the fans. You've said, come, and now they turn up and you're there with a whistle on the platform. <laughs> and that was cool because then he rang my hotel room at 4.30 in the morning and said, well, do you want to go and do this or not? And <laughs> wake the camo up. You know how hard <laughs> camera and other wake up? Who's the camo? <laughs> well, probably Damo. I love Damo. Damo. I love Shiny. Damo. I love Damo. <laughs> So we're down the, down at the um, train station at five with the, the coach in the back of the car. He, he, we set it up. All these bleary-eyed Essendon fans get off, and there he is with the whistle. You know, welcome to – let's go get him. And then you go back to the hotel at six and play dead for the day so the other news don't know you got it. And then they get to watch it on the six o'clock news. They've, <laughs> they got, they've got a boring cross, and you've got the Essendon coach on the platform at <laughs> 5.30 this morning. Stuff like that. Um, the Victorian uh, State of Origin team out of their hotel – on, on scale one day. Um, I can't remember we used secret buses or how we got underneath the – but I got them all into a pinball parlour in Brisbane. <laughs> the whole lot of them? whole 25 of them <laughs> for an hour of content with the 25 best players in the comp <laughs> without the other crews who were outside the hotel knowing I'd moved the whole team. <laughs> and then got these beautiful pictures for the news of, you know, like ahead of tonight's game, they've relaxed and, you know, they've got – Players shooting hoops at each other or shooting, you know, all the pistols in the plane. Um, Galaga. Yeah. And interviewing, like, the best players in, in the game and then not and then going back to the hotel and pretending you haven't got anything for the rest of the day until they watch it on the news. That, that was the fun stuff. And how, they were good days. Though, how they? flattening for them. So we first met, mate. No fun when it happens the other way, though. No. Yeah. No. We, we first met at Channel 7 where you were the main newsman and I'd work, moved into the sport department and this is where – 
we first came across each other because we had to produce. You were I, producing. Yeah, I produced your footy segment. Now your producers have their own producers. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> times change, <laughs> but you have to work hard, don't you? Yeah. So I was producing for Sports World your footy segment yep. with you and Rex Hunt. Can you record? And David Schwartz for a while too. Yeah, and, and Jason Dunstall for a yeah, while too. And yeah. the chief as well. Yeah. So I used to come in. <laughs> this is uh, I used to come in at five thirty and do the whole footy segment, and used to come in. Used to come in three minutes before we went to air, yeah. and I'd hand you the sheet, and you had an amazing ability to take in that information and then put it out on TV. Do you remember the morning where Rex had been on an interstate flight? and had done something with a fork. Yep. Something snapped in my brain, so I just went up to Qantas Club, grabbed a, grabbed a handful of forks and took them on board. A passenger complained and Hunt was officially interrogated by federal police on arrival into... And it was a big blow-up story. Yeah. It was clickbait before it was clickbait. Yes, it was yeah. clickbait. So Rex had got in trouble at the airport yeah. and you... I remember I had the rundown and you said... Uh, I just got a couple of props and you pulled out a metal knife and fork. I thought, I don't know how this is going to go, but it was golden TV. It was golden TV. Rex was, in that Uh, era, he was compelling content, wasn't he? Unstoppable. And he was in everything and he was bigger than the game. And yeah, so I had had a period of working with him at seven in that environment. And we see the tips on Friday nights still in the news. That's very, yeah. And then had the ability in our early AFL live days, regional footy, to have him call for us for a period of time. And yeah, he's, having grown up, you talk about having grown up. Yeah. Listen to someone and as an 18-year-old listening to him's description of footy, it, it lit a fire in you and so to work with him was for that period was an honour. The other thing you would not do, so they brought in a, was it called ENPS? What was the computer system called? <laughs> what was that system called? <laughs> oh, it, oh. Was the de- it was nearly the death of you. Yeah. So there was a, a, yeah. a computer system where everyone had to put their stories in the rundown for yeah. the first time and you were- I wouldn't do it. You were the great avoider. Yeah. You yeah. would do everything. Explain. Well, I've never really been um, – I'm, I'm not a computer or tech-savvy guy. <laughs> no, you're not, Craig. I'm a content. H- how many times over the years have you misplaced your car? Oh, wow. This is, took a, took a, took a <laughs> turn. How many do you reckon? Well, I, don't, I haven't had a car for the best part of a decade. Because you kept misplacing it? But, I, yeah, I would lose it semi-regularly back in the day. <laughs> I would just get <laughs> – <laughs> Oh, guru, um, can you pick me up? I'm not sure where my car is, but I remember being in South Melbourne. And this is nothing to do with alcohol. This is yeah. you had so much on your plate. Yeah, I would just, I'd go to a, so I'd go to the footy. Uh, there were times when I went to the footy for a Friday game. I would leave the footy on a Friday night, not remembering I'd driven there. I'd work, and then I'd get busy for the next three days without a car and re- get to Tuesday and realise. <laughs> Where's my car? But that, that, and it'd be stuck at the MCG on its own. <laughs> that, that's a reflection of how busy you were, which is what I'm trying to convey by saying that. So EMPS, everyone had to put their story in the system. Yep. And that story could then be seen nationally, I think, at the time? Yeah. Well, there were two. There were probably two things that. One, I didn't know how to use it and didn't have the inkling to want to. And the second thing was I was very untrusting of my content going into the national system. Because? Because the interstate offices, in particular South Australian WA, would hunt to see a story of of mine or the Melbourne office going. Yes, and then they'd often either look for a South Australian WA angle to it, or they would ring one of the clubs there to say, "Oh, this is brewing in Melbourne," and you lose control of it. And <laughs> and I became very untrusting. Like there were stories I did that I didn't tell Seven about what the content was until I was actually in front of the camera, and that drove them mad. But I would sometimes say, I've got something big and we're breaking into the three o'clock daily schedule. So you had the control to break in without actually telling anyone what the story was. Yeah, I might say tell Tim and swear him to secrecy and then they, he would have to, or whoever it may be. Are you know, breaking into news or programming? Sometimes into programming, yeah. <laughs> With an unknown big <laughs> bomb you're about to launch. Well, in those days, yeah, you'd, you'd try and, because there was... No such thing as Twitter or a digital nah. platform or a .com. And if they trusted you, they would let you break into programming from time to time. But there was – and it fell over, you know. You, you're on your own. So that's – they were the days. The other, so I didn't – so the computer I didn't embrace. The other thing you, you introduced for, me to um, was a great group of mates through sport. So I'd come from the country, then worked a bit, then gone overseas. I was quite itinerant didn't have mates that I grew up in Melbourne playing sport with. And all of a sudden, 
I reckon it was you that just formed our own cricket team at Middle Park. Yep. And that progressed into a football team at the Two Blues. I'm often fascinated how you came up with our own cricket team. It was at Middle Park. And I've never asked you this. Did you just go to the club? Do you remember how this happened? Yeah, but loosely. Um, when I grew up in Warrigal, we all my mates, we all played for different teams. So we didn't really get to play sport together. We were, we were all in pockets of the region, you know, and so we're all mates at school or wherever. But, and then we'd try and get together and play in rep teams, and but you wouldn't always get – not everyone would get picked, and you couldn't just pick your mates – we had a good run there for a while. We play once a month in. Uh, we play for Warrigal District against the other. So we would always talk about this, and so in Melbourne it was a orchestrated effort to just to play together for once. I had mates like these names about Manly too, but Gerada and Gears and Mazza and Mazza. All, all these guys who we hadn't actually ever played together. So we, I think, um, I don't know who I knew there, but I just went to them and asked if we could Middle Park put a Sunday team together. Yeah, I might have started at East Melbourne initially, and then. They, it couldn't be done there, so we moved to Middle Park and uh, away but, it went. But a Sunday team that we would have no association with the club and we wouldn't train, yep. but we could take their Sunday team over. Yeah, it was just a pitch, though. Do would you like a Sunday team? <laughs> These <laughs> yeah. are the terms and conditions. We're not going to train. <laughs> we're going to come and go. Uh, we understand if you don't want us, but we're going to play somewhere. And you know. So describe yourself, firstly, as a cricketer, because I've got great memories of us playing cricket together. What, what, what did you, what, how would you describe yourself in modern parlance? As a kid, I was so awkward in the field, I was known as Pillar in my team because I moved like a pillar. <laughs> as a kid, I could bat a little bit. Wayne as an adult, but it was okay as a kid. Canny captain. And and love taking risk as captain. Yeah. You you were David Warner on steroids as captain. Trying to do something when there wasn't something to be done the whole time. The other team could be chasing, needing 10 to win with six weeks in hand. All of a sudden you go, let's put five slips in. Just try stuff. <laughs> Just try that was stuff. a good fun stuff though, wasn't it? <laughs> but yeah. frequently but that was, it was a great way to- It um, was. Yeah. When, and then that lived long beyond me. Yeah. I, I then moved overseas. Uh, Mid two thousands, we started winning premierships after yeah. you left. To be honest, yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Justin not, became captain. Yeah, yeah, uh, in cricket, but not football. So we played football together. You as became well. a very good bat there at that period of time. Yeah, a red ink specialist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not not very flamboyant, to be fair. <laughs> no, no. Took your time. But you know what I yeah. used to understand about cricket? The uh, blokes like uh, mates of ours, Sneaky, Deaky, and Butsy would make four hundred runs for the year and average seventy five. Yep. But I understood. The batting qualification was 150 runs. Yep, you'd get so I'd make there. a series of eight not outs, <laughs> yeah. make 152, get dismissed once, and win the batting average. Yeah, you would. And you'd, and you'd thank everyone like you're the Don Brabant and the right. Specious. That's right. <laughs> that is the end of Craig Hutchison Part A. So much more. So much more to come in Part B.